This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Quantico on ABC. They are the FBI's top recruits, sworn to protect our country, but one of them is a terrorist. The series premiere of Quantico, Sunday, September 27th at 10, 9 central on ABC. Getting into college was once a normal teenage rite of passage. Now it's a global hunger games. You're competing against the kid at the best school in Singapore. Slate and Panoply are here to help. Our new podcast, Getting In, follows a group of seniors through the college application process in real time. Along the way, the students and listeners will get advice from experts with decades of experience. Getting In, a podcast about demystifying college admissions and finding the right fit for every student. Available in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. This week, You're the Worst is back. The Bastard Executioner is coming up. And is there even a point of networks having a brand? I'm Margaret Lyons, and I'm here with Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, Margaret. Hi. Gazelle is out of town this week, and we miss her. But she'll be back with us soon. So... Just before I think like the real glut of fall TV begins, we've had a couple of new and returning shows, namely You're the Worst on FXX, which I love, and Matt... It's very funny. ...likes. Absolutely. But doesn't carry with him like the precious treasure. I, no, I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, life is big and te- so is television. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we talk a lot about rom-coms, I think especially pegged to catastrophe, but I've been thinking a lot about it also pegged to Plain House, which I think has a really strong, fun rom-com vibe. Yes. I feel like all, all the stories about You're the Worst have been like, it's the modern rom-com, finally a rom-com for today. Do you think that's a fair way to describe it? I don't know about that. I mean, to me, it sort of reminds me of With Nail and I, but with a guy and a girl, you know? Like, it's a little kind of knowingly ill-tempered and funny that way. But that's true, I guess, of more of like an HBO type of sitcom would be. Do you like rom-com TV shows? I do. I do. My problem with it is I think that very often they are they run into trouble if the show is driven by one main romantic pairing. Yeah. You know, just because it's such a linear thing. And one of the things that is true of the romantic comedy, just as it's true of the Western and a lot of other genres, is you pretty much know what all the beats are. So then the question becomes, do we want to drag this out over the course of a season or two <laughs> yeah. seasons or whatever? That's why I think, like, the best shows that have a romance at the center, the romance is at the center, but that's not all that's going on. And, of course, the greatest example for me is Cheers. You know, that's that's a show that was driven by, you know, first one and then another central love relationships where there were always other things that were sort of spiraling around them. But uh, it's tricky. It's tricky like anything else. One of the things I like about You're the Worst is that I actually never really worry that they're going to break up. No. If they get rid of that sort of like, will they, won't they, within the first sort of like 90 seconds of the pilot, it's like, they did, they will. Like, <laughs> like yeah. that's on. And I think like watching the how of everything is much more interesting than, you know, like they already got together. So now that they're together, what does that entail? I almost feel like that's sort of like a summation of everything that TV is about and anything that could pose a problem for television, you know? Like, uh, I was thinking about that watching another FX show, The Bastard Executioner, which is... Not to give away too many things, but if you've ever seen a movie with swords in it, there's not a lot I can give away. But it's a revenge story. You know, you killed my loved one and now I'm going to kill you. And then we know how that goes. We know how that goes. Eventually, (laughs) eventually he's going to kill the guy who did him wrong. That's the way these things go. And then it's a question of how are we going to get there and how long is it going to take? And do I have the patience for this? And is there enough going on besides that story to carry me through it? 
in Bastard Executioner? What's the answer for that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I watched the first two hours of it. I was going to watch the third, but I couldn't quite bring myself to do it. And I have to say, I respect, there's a there's a kind of a mulish integrity to Kurt Sutter that I admire, even though a lot of the time, probably most of the time recently, his stuff isn't really doing it for me. He certainly knows what his audience wants, and he knows what he enjoys, and he kind of doesn't care what I have to say about that. And I like that. <laughs> I respect that. I respect that. I think it's much better than, like, uh, the kind of wailing and gnashing of teeth that we get from a lot of people on shows like uh, Game of Thrones, to name one, where we think the show is problematic in some way, and the creators come in to insist that it's not and we're just watching it wrong you know I, I don't like Kurt Sutter never does that and I like that but that said this uh, show I don't know I'm sort of torn because you have to give a show a chance but as I said earlier in this broadcast life is big and so is television like I've only got so many hours left in my life <laughs> according to the actuarial tables I'm I'm pushing up on two-thirds of the way through it do I really want to commit to see how the bastard executioner turns out. I don't know. I don't know. And maybe that's not fair to the show. Maybe that's not fair to any television show. But at some point, the math just doesn't work. I couldn't. <laughs> I made it through about half an hour of bastard executioner. Yeah. So I, 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 it was easier for me to step away because I knew you were writing the review. So I was, <laughs> I was like optimistic. I was like, oh, maybe if I really like it, you know, it'll be a fun thing to write about down the road. But I, it was just not a Margaret show at all. No, no, no. And and you know, we, I guess we should sort of fill people in on the background detail of this. It's this. Um, but we're not going to give away any spoilers or anything. We're sort of speaking in generalities about the I first. I know, and I almost feel, <laughs> I almost feel kind of like a lamo even having to give a disclaimer like that because it's like you saw a freaking. Braveheart, you know, you know what happens. You know what happens. <laughs> you know, you've seen like if you've ever seen a sword and sorcery movie or a film set in the deep historical past. Yeah. Usually, you know, you killed my loved one, uh, you burned my village, whatever, and now I'm going to kill you. That's 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 sure. like almost the only story they can tell. I was watching. Kind of... I was thinking sword and sorcery, and then you have like swords and sandals, and I was like, oh, this is basically a swords and screaming epic <laughs> because there's so yeah. much screaming on yes, the show. Yes, it is. Not that it's like incorrect or it's like no. One would scream then it's like oh yeah these are all scream moments but it, within the first half hour there's at least as much screaming as there is dialogue there is actually and it's funny because i was suddenly made aware of how there are sound effects libraries like periodically i need to be reminded that there's such a thing as a sound effects library and there's only a certain number of clanging sword sounds <laughs> and whinnying horse sounds and people and screaming and i stuff. mean this and, and you hear them and i and i and at one point while i'm watching bastard executioner i I dropped a pen and I bent down to try to pick it up and and I couldn't find this pen under my desk and I'm hearing the the sound of the bastard executioner and I'm not actually watching it for a space of about 45 seconds and I and it was like oh that sounds exactly like game of thrones. I will say it's very very bloody and so if if you know I think there's a difference in the kinds of violence we see on television and and this is not a sort of judgment referendum on is that good or bad but this is the kind of super blood spurty like <laughs> vulture eating a war like a intestine out of a guy like it's very very graphic and sort of hand-to-hand violent and not like um you know a massacre like on uh, true detective or something where well, everyone's know, getting shot the, the the film critic joe bob briggs who who was really big when i was younger he used to have this system where he would at the end of the review he would list all of the things that people wanted to really know about. It was like, <laughs> you know, 15 deaths, four mutilations, uh, one burn village, and then he had all variations of foo. There's like kung fu, sword foo, uh, head through plate glass window foo, three <laughs> breasts, that kind of stuff. And I feel like this show would benefit from that. Like, it basically, you could have tags at the bottom, and it would have, like, blood spurty. It would just be really hard to keep track of. 
Yeah. I mean, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much. And there's just like piles of bodies. And it was a lot for me. That said, I also, I mean, I did max out on Kurt Sutter's previous show, Sons of Anarchy. Yes. Which was extremely violent. And I kind of reached like a point of no return when I was just like, you know, I think I think this is, I'm good now. I, <laughs> I, kept, me, I, I kept reaching the point of no return and then returning. And, and I think the reason that I kept returning with that show was it was at once frustratingly predictable in what it was interested in, but also really unpredictable at the same time. Like there would be all of this sort of gangster intrigue with, you know, the, the, the black bike gang and the Mayans and the CIA and the Suns and, and they're all tangled up and there's guns and there's drugs and there's prostitutes and there's something involving Mexico and like... I never really care that much about that stuff. Like, I didn't care about that <laughs> much, that stuff on The Sopranos. It was fine, but I really am more interested in the psychology of the characters and, like, how they feel about all that stuff. And and so when he would get lost in the intrigue, I just would kind of zone out a little bit. But then he would have these moments where the bikers would just have a long conversation in a cabin about the history of the club and their resentments and their issues. And it suddenly becomes this workplace drama or this domestic drama. And, uh, and Katie Seagal kept me watching, honestly. And it wasn't that necessarily her character was the best written character in the history of TV. It was, there was something heroic about her performance week to week, like trying to make this person plausible. And I just liked also the fact that he, he, he marches to the beat of his own drummer and uh, there is a kind of a focus group quality to a lot of genre shows, even if they think they're being edgy. But not to say there isn't a lot of formulaic type stuff on this show. So the bad guy, the local lord played by Brian F. O'Byrne, they introduce him. He's mounting a woman from behind. And the next time we see him, he's taking a dump. You know, it's like, and that's how we know it's cable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> that's how we know it's the Middle Ages. And then, <laughs> and then like, his, his second in command, his uh, lieutenant is introduced, like, stripping the flesh from a man's back and yeah and I, I i have a very high threshold for violence i love hannibal i i have almost no trouble with the violence on game of thrones it's always the attitude towards the violence that bugs me and and my my issue with the violence on this show is i don't know what his attitude is the violence i find tiresome on Bastard executioner more than anything else especially because we have a lot of shows that sort of like feel like this to me of oh, it's muddy and there's horses and, like, I have, like, a surprisingly intricate piece of embroidery for my clothing and, like, let's have doggy-style sex while I'm talking to one of my underlings. Like, that's how much I don't care. I'm so powerful. And it's just like, oh, my God. Message received. All the shots of, like, we're stomping down the hallways of, like, a danky castle. It's like, I've seen it. Like, I need something so much more interesting because I think, like, this sort of jazzy production quality of like, see a castle. It's like, I've seen a lot of castles now. Like, yes. no more castles, no more swords. It's like, oh, wow. Like, they used to wrap swords in just like a random piece of hide. It's like, I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> that's not a story. That's not enough. It's like, whoa, cool sword. It's like, how about you tell me more about your actual deal? And I need it to be more than just like, my wife, I hope no one kills her. It's like, hmm, I wonder. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Well, and I actually joked as I was watching this thing like again this isn't even a spoiler guys i'm not even gonna coddle you anymore so, <laughs> so just you know fuck off the, 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 he has a pregnant wife and she gets murdered by the bad guy what else is a pregnant wife for in these in these types of shows and movies yeah. nothing else and like you cast somebody in that role in a movie that involves swords and horses and people with bad teeth she's a supporting character maybe she's a cameo that's the way these things go. So I ain't spoiling shit. That's what happens. And the rest of it's a revenge story. And it's a and it's a it's gonna be a long 
long one. It's going to be a long one because it's a television show. Like <laughs> Kill Bill, it's like looks like a haiku compared to what this show is going to be, and they're going to have to bring it. And the question is, can they bring it? I don't know. The one thing that really intrigues me about Kurt Sutter, but I can't quite figure out about him, and I think if I ever did a long interview with him, I would probably concentrate on this, is he seems determined to push this idea of the anti-hero you care about about as far as it can possibly be pushed. Like, the characters on The Sopranos were incredibly lovable and likable and nice compared to some of the characters on Sons of Anarchy. That show was so unrelentingly grim, like, all the time, in terms of just the violence, the treachery, the, the sadism, everything. And yet it still treated them like they were just uh, the people we root for. And that fascinates me. And there's an element of that on The Bastard Executioner, too. And the problem for me is that aside from the fact that that's his big idea, I'm not getting a whole lot of plumbing the depths of that, if you know what I mean. Did you not find The Sopranos grim? I did, but it was funny, which helped. You know, like maybe that sounds callous, but <laughs> when a show like uh, I was talking about this with my friend Alan Sepinwall about um, comedies and dramas, and he he accused me once of devaluing comedy because drama was serious. And I said, no, 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 that's not that's not it at all, because the best dramas, the really great dramas are funny. Like there's fun. Usually, often they're as funny as almost any funny comedy that you could name. Like The Sopranos was really funny. The Wire was really funny. Breaking Bad was really funny. And the lack of humor besides the kind of um, macho clubhouse attaboy, guess who I fucked last night sort of humor, like that, it was humor challenged. SOA was humor challenged a lot of the time. And this show is too. It's like, and like you say, it's like there's a lot of clanging and screaming and burning and, you know, oh, my baby, you know, bow down, wench, rah, you know, like. <laughs> hoofbeats, 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 yeah, hoofbeats, exactly. yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and the foley, you know, the whoosh, ah. Gush, oh gush, God. gush, you know, yeah. arrow in neck, sword in <laughs> neck, close-up of gushing, spurting wound. Ah, oh, mother, no, you know. No, 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 I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah. It's weird because I feel like I like shows with, like, a central driving idea. And everything I heard about this, I was like, I probably am not going to, this is, like, not really for me. But, geez, I wonder, because, like, what if there was a this kind of thing? Or I remember, yeah. I actually loved the first season of Sons of Anarchy. I thought it was very dreamy and strange, and it had, like, such a cool attitude about itself. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, there were just a lot fewer shows that were like that. I think we've seen, since then, just more good shows. Yeah. Um. But feeling very much like, oh, this has this really cool, you know, almost like Shakespearean father and son battle kind of thing. And and what's going to happen? And, and, you know, what is the point of being a loyal member of any organization? Like, are all human endeavors inherently corrupt? You know, there was like yes. a lot to it. And then over the course of the show, I felt like it really lost that kind of um, like ethical fascination and and it seemed to get much... it, it seemed to get bored with itself at some point like i'm sure that kurt sutter doesn't feel that way but that's what i like i felt like the, a spark went out of it like the first two seasons maybe three seasons and parts of four and five like occasionally they had some knockout episodes there too they still had it but they just started to lose it as they went along but also it was also a very frustrating show in that the level of the acting and the direction the writing never quite got to that level. Like, there were a lot of segments that would be beautifully conceived. I love the idea. I love the execution. But but the meat of it was not quite there for me. 
And that's, you know, this is a problem with a lot of shows. There are a lot of shows on FX that are that are like that. Like, I think The Americans, like, I, it might be interesting to talk about what makes a show like The Americans artistically superior in almost every respect to Sons of Anarchy, even though the characters on that show are just as kind of scummy in terms of their actions. I think at a central level, The Americans is wrestling with a big question, and we talk about this a lot. If Bastard Executioner is wrestling with a big question, that was not apparent to me. You know, obviously I watched 30 minutes of it. Like, I, that it, it might be wrestling with a big question, but it really didn't seem like it was anywhere close to being able to articulate that. Yeah, yeah. Does FX have a personality? Is there such a thing as an FX show? Yeah, I mean, there is, right? Like, I think if we think of, you know, The Shield and Nip Tuck and Terriers, The Americans, Lights Out, um, what else we got? Sons of Anarchy. Those all do feel of a kind. The Dennis Leary shows. Oh, yeah, sure. Rescue Me, which I care about more than you cared about. Uh, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Not a great show, but... Very much in that wheelhouse. Absolutely in that wheelhouse. You know... Some of these are great shows. Like I would, The Shield is one of the greats for me. It's a great show. Certainly, The Americans. I also was very into Nip Tuck for a long time. Like that definitely stayed on way too long. <laughs> like it's a yeah. there's two and a half excellent seasons spread over the course of I think like eight or seven actual seasons. It just became terrible. But when it first premiered, that Ryan Murphy aesthetic was nowhere else on television. You know. And it was no, so that's true. It was like, it was like he was like he was like David E. Kelly from Hell, a lot of the time. <laughs> like he had that sort of like bitchy, like <laughs> I'm I'm gonna do something just to shock you sort of sort of feeling. And it definitely carried over to uh, American Horror Story in a big way, I think. And even Glee, even Glee had a touch of that too, even though it was like you know something that in theory a middle schooler would have no problem watching but it definitely had a quality of oh my god i can't believe they did that yeah that's like ryan murphy's driving energy right it's like whoa he they said it they did that you know i think that's sort of like what made glee stand out and like for a little while at least what kind of counteracted how corny it was was that it also was going to be very nasty Yes. And that there was going to be a lot of lines where it's like, yikes, that's a really nasty thing to say. And so it wasn't just like a musical Degrassi. <laughs> no, no, that's true. And and also, again, here and here we go again. Ryan Murphy's shows are funny. They're often funny. Even when they're shitty, they're often funny. Oh, yes. You know, and, yeah. the, and the actors are having fun. I remember, I guess it was a few seasons into the, the a few episodes of the first season of American Horror Story when I decided that I loved this show. And it was a flashback <laughs> to a family dinner and, and Jessica Lang comes out of the kitchen and the first shot and the first line of it is she comes out of the kitchen she lifts a tray into the frame containing a ham and she goes and she goes ladies and gentlemen I present to you the ham and it's and her her face is in close up directly behind the ham and I practically wanted to hold up a lighter and go yeah you know like I love that I love that as somebody who overall considers herself a Ryan Murphy fan, I do think there's a level of restraint that doesn't always exist. And sometimes being <laughs> sometimes being like really, you know, free and, and huge and big is great. And sometimes, you know, you want a little bit more tension, right, where we're saving something for the end. And so, you know, there's a reason that there's an 11 o'clock number and it's not all 11 o'clock numbers. Like right. we want, and I think with Ryan Murphy, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's all 11 it, o'clock yeah. numbers sometimes. Um, it is. Ease off the caps. <laughs> ease off the caps lock key, as a friend of mine says, American Horror Story. Although somehow there's less screaming on American Horror Story than there is on Bastard Execution. Well, there's certainly more musical numbers. We can <laughs> we can say that right off the bat. There are definitely going to be more musical numbers on any season of American Horror Story. I don't know if there was a 
Men in Tights episode of Bastard Executioner, I'd be down. I'll tell you, if they came right out of the gate and, and the hero opened up his mouth and started to sing... I would be in the tank for this show immediately. <laughs> I feel immediately. like somewhere Gallivant fans are like, come on, give us some love. <laughs> I enjoyed Gallivant, okay? Like, I, yeah, I like yeah. it. I just I wasn't sure it was a great fit as a premise of a television show. You know, I the, thought it was, I I'm, that, I'm that guy who runs around telling people about cop rock. <laughs> and, tell, and going, no, no, seriously, there was something to that show. And they're like, no. What about Viva Laughlin? Remember that? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> that was great. And I love, I, yeah, I just, I'm a sucker for musicals of any kind. I want to see more of that on TV. I don't know <laughs> if FX is going to give us that necessarily, but that's okay. I do like how FX, th- th- it's a blessing and a curse. FX gives its creators more artistic freedom, I think, than almost any broadcast network in existence, which isn't to say that they don't give them notes. But I can't think of another commercial broadcast network where they'll do the thing that FX does, which is a Kurt Sutter or a Louis C.K. or pretty much anybody, the makers of Fargo, will come up and go, oh, by the way, this episode isn't uh, can't run in an hour time slot. It's too long. We're going to need 90 minutes or we're going to need two hours. And they're like, fine, we'll just run more ads. Yeah, I mean, that is... That's amazing, but it's also kind of bad sometimes if you don't need (laughs) two hours for that story. Right, so there's a difference between leeway and indulgence. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. And I think having a lot of creative leeway is great. Obviously, we all think that, right? Of course, that's great. Oh, sure. Um, But at a certain point, having just, yeah, sure, like every episode of Sons of Anarchy can be 89 minutes long. It's like, well, I like, like, is that really necessary? You and know? there's like a four minute montage of Charlie Hunnam writing the story by <laughs> almond milk, you know? Yeah. Things need to be their correct length. Sometimes that's longer than a traditional episode. Oftentimes, however, that's, you, that's not the case. I was going to say, you would be surprised how often <laughs> yeah. that's not the case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I also think, you know, if you look at, for example, like Netflix shows, right, which theoretically could be as long as they wanted to be. Yeah. You know, they're coming in closer to between like 56 and 101, right, for for like an hour-length episode of like Orange is the New Black, for example, right? So versus like a network show, it's probably going to be closer to 44 minutes depending on the network. Right. But even Showtime shows are are like sort of second perfect in terms of how long an episode is. Yes, they so are. HBO shows for the most part, too. Yeah. So it's interesting to, for FX, especially because it's a commercial-supported, ad-supported cable network, to be that flexible about episode length. That's a great thing about them. They're sort of like there was this independent production company, BBS, which released movies like Easy Rider and The King of Marvin Gardens in, in the 60s and 70s. And I feel like FX is probably close to that or to like Roger Corman in the 60s and 70s where if you just look at the stuff on the page, you go, oh, that's schlock. Oh, that's also schlock. But then you go, then you see directed by Martin Scorsese. I don't think of any – I mean, yes, of course there's like some schlock on FX. But like I would probably say sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's like yeah, low, yeah. I guess I mean list. in terms of like the subject matter, not the execution, but like just what is this show about? Oh, you know, uh, yeah. Oh, it's about a bike gang. Well, you know, half the a lot of the Roger Corman pictures were too. Sure, sure, sure. I thought yeah. you meant like none of these sound like a good show, and I was like, oh, I think they sound. Oh no, they, they are, sound they sound yeah. kind of awesome. It's just a question of you know how they how they executed, I guess. <laughs> HBO. Um, it's funny also to find out how what kind of notes networks give and whether or not they're helpful or hurtful. And hearing that on HBO there were some exe- at HBO there were some executives who were basically telling the directors of Game of Thrones, we need more boobies. We yeah. need more boobies. Now, yeah. you know, I mean, they like they practically they probably have a button they push and an alarm. I goes mean, that off. was a note that Stars gave Party Down, right. which is why there's the 
adult film episode of Party Down <laughs> was to get more boobs and more nudity into an episode. You know, so it's not yeah. just Swords and Screamers. Yeah, and Showtime, <laughs> and we mentioned this in a previous episode, but the decision to not kill off Brody at the end of season one of Homeland, that was apparently a network decision. Yeah, when I think of sort of like network identities or whatever, I think FX feels maybe like as close to one another as any network I can think of. Yeah. Right? Very much like if you like this, you might also like. I think for <laughs> FX is dead on, right? Yeah. Like if you like The Shield, you probably would like Sons of Anarchy for at least a little while. Yeah. And if you like, you know, Nip Tuck, you probably will like American Horror Story and you probably will like Fargo too. If you like Fargo, you might, you're might. you probably going to like The Americans. And if you like anything, you will like Terriers because Terriers is the best. Terriers is great. <laughs> one of the great one and done shows ever. Oh, what a treat. I mean, that, that one was probably the sort of furthest of field at the time. Right, because I think Terriers and Fargo fit pretty neatly together in some ways of having a very, like a willingness to be very dark when called for and a willingness to be very character driven yeah. when called for and also to follow like strong mystery, strong storytelling for that, right? We have like a strong propulsive feeling of we're driving at end of a story, yes. but also along the way, we're really investing in who's with us on that journey, <laughs> you know, that, that the individual characters within the story are as important to solving whatever is afoot as any kind of other mechanism could be. And I also like seeing how networks and cable channels will behave like studios, like movie studios in the old days, where they will just decide, this director has talent, this writer has talent, this this actor or actress has talent, and they keep casting them and stuff until they hit. They did that like like uh, Clooney, like George Clooney over at NBC. <laughs> it's like, damn it, we're going to keep putting him in shows until he becomes a star, and eventually he was. Eventually he was. And some hunches don't pan out, you know, like that. But it's nice. And I like how there are certain people who are welcome at particular networks because somebody at the network likes them. They just like their work. They respect their work. And they want to be patrons of the arts. Like how else to explain (laughs) how else to explain the continuing career of David Simon? David Simon is not making money for HBO. He's just not. But I have to assume that they're like... uh, Renaissance princes or something going, here you go, here's here's a, here's a sack of gold, go, oh make, my God. go make me Someone a painting. Someone at HBO just had like nine billion orgasms over being described as a Renaissance patron. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> true, but you know, on the other hand, they're probably out there slitting the throats of peasants in the hinterland, <laughs> so it all balances out. HBO you know, is not but a TV remember, charity. Okay, Come on. So, so just just so you don't like uh, uh, think I'm polishing HBO's knob. This is also <laughs> this is also <laughs> this is also the network that gave us six freaking seasons of Arliss. You know, I've seen every episode of Arliss, Matt. <laughs> I'm completely serious. There was actually a press tour. Um, this is like 15 years ago or something. That um, at, during the HBO session, one of my colleagues stood up and said, as if it was this, the like the Watergate hearings, like. <laughs> Is it not true that your top-rated show is real sex? <laughs> you know, and I think we were there to discuss, like, whether The Wire was going to get a fourth season or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, and, and the answer was yes. The answer was yes. And it was a show that nobody wrote about. No sure. critics wrote about. No <laughs> critics wrote about because they didn't want to admit that they had ever watched an episode of Real Sex. Same with but Cops, that... right? When Cops was actually one of the highest rated shows Fox has ever aired. And that's when Nielsen tr- switched from paper diaries to a recording. Like, so you're, if you're a Nielsen family, you used to just write down what you watched. Yeah. And people, it turned out, radically overstated how much PBS they watched and radically understated how much Cops they watched. <laughs> and so it turns out that Cops is like... A huge, huge hit. There's a reason there are still cop specials that air like twice a year on Fox. Yes. Like, 
and no one will be like, oh, yeah, I love cops. But, but it's like, you do. Yeah, you Everyone's do. seen it. There's no way you have had a TV for more than a little while without having seen cops. You've seen cops. Everyone has seen cops. No, that's absolutely true. And and I saw that, and I've joked about this, you know, many times, including in this booth, Walking Dead. Walking Dead is as close to, a, you know, a great American show as cable has ever produced in terms of numbers. It's huge. It's it's huge. And you can walk around this fair city or any city anywhere in the United States on Sunday night. People are watching The Walking Dead. You can walk down streets. There are certain streets in, you know, Brooklyn and Manhattan that have a lot of bars on them. And you can walk through when they're playing Walking Dead and you can follow an entire show from start to finish. You can walk a straight line for 43, <laughs> yeah. 44 minutes and you'll hear run run you know you can follow like the entire it's like radio it's like theater of the mind like that's that's i i would imagine like in the old days when they would show like live theater like marty would be broadcast and 50 million people would watch it you could probably follow the complete plot of marty that way too but now it's with zombies i feel like you're this is the like modern day equivalent of like a squirrel used to be able to walk all across America just going tree to tree. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm like thanks Johnny Appleseed. How do you think, I got, how do you think <laughs> I got to the studio today? Just the like tradition- yeah, you can just walk down the street and listen and overhear from bars and you'll hear the whole episode of The Walking Dead. We used to sleep out on fire <laughs> oh my God. When it'd be a hundred degrees in August, we'd get out on the fire escape. I don't know why I'm the Peppers Farm guy. I don't know. I don't know why <laughs> it's that like, happened. Oh Grandma, what, what were you doing during the dark time? I was like oh. I was walking past bars that were playing a TV show. That was my contribution to society. It was. I remember the good old days. Yeah, I, I, I terrorized my children with tales of the good old days when there were only three channels and you had to get up off the couch to change it. <laughs> yeah. You know. Oh yeah. They, they, yeah. They talked to me as if like I grew up in 12th century England and, and the village elder was 32 and everybody died of typhus. You know, like. Sure. I can't believe it. Don't give it, Dad. Kurt Sutter any more ideas, Matt. Oh God, yes. <laughs> We're going to take a break for a message from our sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to dig in a little harder to the idea that a network has a personality. The Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Quantico on ABC. They are the FBI's top recruits, smart, strong, and skilled. But when a massive terrorist attack strikes in America, the FBI discovers its greatest fear, that one of these Quantico recruits is a terrorist. Which one is behind it all and became a traitor? It's an edge-of-your-seat drama with twist after twist after twist. Priyanka Chopra stars in one of television's top new shows of the fall, the series premiere of Quantico, Sunday, September 27th at 10, 9 central on ABC. Matt, are corporations people? <laughs> <laughs> and if so, which one is your boyfriend? Yes. <laughs> yes, and U.S. Steel. <laughs> For me, yes, and Diet Coke. <laughs> No, just kidding. Corporations are not people. But I, think I think they are. I think they. I think that um, networks and cable channels have personalities. I, think I mean, I think there's definitely, do. you know, some of it is going to be like brand identity, right? And so I think there's probably marketers like high-fiving each other right now being like, yes, it's working. <laughs> like, yeah. like our strategy to brand FX as, you know, young, aggressive, certainly male-driven, probably affluent, right? Like that's going to be say... that FX brand. And not that... Not that only people in that demographic can enjoy those shows, but those shows are absolutely designed to target that demographic. I think that FX, I would agree with that, and I would take it maybe a little step further and say that FX and HBO and, to a certain extent, Showtime and AMC, what they're trying to do is make shows that young dudes will watch anyway. Like, for the violence, the nudity, you know, people doing cocaine off of tabletops and whatever— 
but that might have some artistic value anyway. You come for the, the R-rated content and you stay for the art. Like, I think that's the HBO model. And, and FX, they do stage different variations of that. Like, I don't think that uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia is necessarily, like, by definition, a dude show. No, but there's not a single show on FX that stars a woman, right? And that is not true of Showtime. That's not true of HBO. I guess that's currently true of AMC. Mm. There are female characters on FX, certainly, but there's not a single show has a female lead. Right. That's um, and that is not true of, of HBO. That's not true of Showtime. Like, it's not an inherently bad thing, right? Like, that's the point of FX. Right. And that's part of why they broke off FXX to be their comedy thing, because I think some of those comedies, particularly You're the Worst, have a less obvious dude drive. Right. Of course, you know, networks want to appeal to men, which are especially young men who are sort of traditionally the more difficult demographic to reach. That's sort of why there was so much money going into Adult Swim. Right. Not just because those shows are creatively great, which a lot of them are, but also because it's extremely popular with young men who otherwise are not watching as much television. Yes. And and one of the great revelatory press tours that I ever had was, I guess it was about 12 or 13 years ago when I just decided that I was going to educate myself a little bit on why why young guys are so sought after. And the answer that a couple of... Is it because they're cute? (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) No, it, it was because this is true of everybody to a degree. But guys have consumer tastes that are set when they're teenagers or they're in their 20s. And once they have decided on particular brands, whether it's a chip, a beer, a kind of car that they like, a certain type of gym that they like to go to, a certain type of couch they want to buy for their man cave, they never change their taste. Like very, very rarely, whereas women are much more likely to do that. This was the explanation that was given to me. So that was why there was this mad rush to appeal to young men. Like, it was like, we got to get them because somebody is going to get in there and form their taste, and we want it to be us because we only have one shot at these guys. Like, we're going to have more shots at women to change their tastes, to say, hey, you know, this this brand might be better than the brand that you're currently using. And, uh, and, that, and, and I feel like that's why this entire culture is driven by what appeals to young men. Like, I just think it's all, it all comes down to trying to sell them goods. And in some cases, the goods are the movie and television show itself, which is the case with these comic book movies. Sure. I also think probably the patriarchy. <laughs> I think that's... Like, I, it's not just... Like, advertising is true. a subset of the patriarchy at this point, but... It is. Uh, you know, they work The smaller concert. circle inside of the larger circle. <laughs> you yes. know, they, they, they work together, certainly. They um, absolutely do. And I do find it funny that the young men playing hard to get is what's driving this entertainment economy. <laughs> you know, they're like coyly fluttering their lashes at the advertisers. When I think about, like, what kind of what network has like this sort of clearest identity. What's weird is, you know, like Bravo is really high up there for me. Not that I like it because I, I strenuously don't like most of it. But right, like, if it's like, oh, it's a spinoff of a Bravo reality show. It's like message received. You know exactly right? what that like, means. I, that is a very clear thing. And I think, you know, if you're really into any of the Real Housewives franchises, it's very likely that you're into it's like affiliated material. I think VH1 has a very strong, clear idea of... These are the kinds of particularly unscripted shows that that are on VH1 at any given time, which is makes me sad because Hindsight, which I loved, 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 yeah. and it got renewed and then got canceled, again, even though it had already been renewed, because it doesn't fit that VH1 story. MTV, I think, has probably like a pretty clear deal to they me. They do, and it's funny how some of these, these cable networks that you're mentioning, they had a very distinctive brand. 
And then the brand identity changed. And yes. now it's just as distinctive, but it's very It's something different. different. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there was a time... Like Bravo when... didn't used to mean oh what it means now. At all. No. It used there to was... mean like there was a, you know... Inside a... the actor's studio. Uh, yeah, I was going to say like a woman in a Viking helmet performing an aria. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were for real. I mean, same for A&E, right? Which again, yeah. I think has a pretty strong brand identity as like hot garbage but like <laughs> <laughs> but like exploits poor people HG but it's like Oof. the HG uh, network <laughs> you know same for TLC which is just Satan's mistress like oh my god I had a moment with my my 11 year old son we were walking down the street we were talking about my job god forbid and you know reviewing <laughs> like reviewing TV he's fascinated by this idea that somebody could review TV shows and that's their job and I mentioned, like, all the different networks that there are, and I said, and the Learning Channel. And he said, the Learning Channel, what's that? And I said, you know, TLC. And he goes, that's what TLC stands for? <laughs> he had no frame of reference for that at all because, you know, nobody really learns anything from TLC anymore. No. And, I, I mean, I feel like it's that's almost, uh, like, it doesn't actually stand for that anymore. It, like, no longer stands for anything. Like KFC. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Is that the one that says Kentucky it Fried Capybara. <laughs> But I think, you know, that was something when Mr. Robot came out where you're like, oh, that's a USA show because I think that kind of sunglasses upbeat detective was like the, such a clear USA thing where it's like, oh, monk, royal pains, white collar uh, suits like they all had this kind of sort of similar vibe. And then Mr. Robot, very much not that. And I think for Lifetime, like I think Lifetime's crap stuff and and I say this as someone who's seen hundreds of Lifetime movies which are now on their own network and I find Lifetime's reality programming to be like pretty crass and awful but then Unreal I thought was one of the best shows I'd seen in years. Once in a while you get something that seems to violate the integrity of the brand and that's one (laughs) of those shows that's absolutely one of those shows and I think Mr. Robot is that show for USA and I would say that Hannibal was that show for NBC and I can't tell you how many times people who watch that show would say to me I can't believe that show is on NBC. On a network, but specifically on NBC. It feels like it should have been on Showtime or right. something. I mean, I think NBC, for people like our age, has a weird legacy of being like, oh, yeah, a thing where, like, a place where good shows live, even though, like, uh, like that isn't true or isn't as true as it used to be. Yeah. But, like, you know, my strongest association with NBC is obviously going to be, like, that musty TV stuff from the 90s. And it's like, oh, yeah. Yes. You know, like, that you had such a strong attachment to that. Or my strongest attachment to Fox, like, my instant thought is gonna always going to be 902 and Owen Melrose Place, which I say with affection, but those obviously haven't aired there in 20 years. Right. I think for cable outlets, it's much more important that they have, like, such a clear, specific thing because they're going to be more niche targeted. That's sort of their reason for existing, whereas the networks have to have a really broad identity, right? Like, you can't just be like, ABC, that's for whatever. Like, ah, eh, that's for, like, menopause ladies, right? <laughs> yeah. Versus, like, own or something, where if you're like, that's for menopause ladies, like, yep, that's why we're advertising this menopause, whatever. <laughs> like, yes, it is, and that, that's what it's for, and these are the shows we're making. Like, that's an okay thing. But for the networks, they have to be like, no, we're for everyone. Like, come to they, ABC. They like, are for everyone, and yet they do have a personality. Like, I think that the dramas and comedies on NBC have a very different personality, a different kind of temperature than the dramas and comedies on CBS. Yeah. And and ABC is particularly intriguing to me because ABC started out it was the Fox network of its day, which is to say it was a new, it was an upstart and advertisers would rather advertise on NBC and CBS because they were established and ABC was a little, considered a little bit low class in comparison. And as a result, ABC would give a green light to things that NBC and CBS wouldn't touch like Roots, mm-hmm. you know, and like Twin Peaks. And in fact, Hannibal's a kind of show that would have aired on uh, ABC. If it was the 90s, 
You know, it has that kind of a vibe to it. I, I feel like it would have aired on Fox in the 90s because you can totally picture Hannibal along with, like, X-Files oh and Millennium, God. right? Yes, like, that yes. that definitely fits together to me of that, like, that really dark Fox drama that was happening then. This idea of, like, packaging uh, uh, X-Files <laughs> and Hannibal back-to-back, I actually got a little chill when you said that. <laughs> that would be so awesome. They fit together to me in a lot of ways because we have, you know, Monster of the Week episodes and Mythology episodes. I mean, obviously, Gillian Anderson is going to be the threat. And Gillian Anderson, exactly. But... Exactly. And, you know, some stuff that's, like, genuinely scary. Like, there were definitely episodes of the X-Files where it was like, can I sleep with the light on? They, like... that sca- yeah, that scared the crap out of my kids. They they, they watched almost every episode of the X-Files. They, they worked their way through it over the course of several months. And I got to tell you, I got great pleasure out of hearing these kids who were supposedly too cool for school sometimes <laughs> not talking. They're yeah. not talking. They're just sitting there silently staring at this thing that's scaring the crap out of them. You know, it was like a victory. It's like a little victory (laughs) for art. (laughs) Now that we've talked about brands so much, do you feel like we're decrepit shills of like the corporate machine? I don't know. I mean, like we're not. I like to think of us as the equivalent of naturalists describing like the taxonomy of certain species. All right. I'll take it because I was just like, oh, I feel like a husk of like this like sad dollar sign. There's a certain kind of book. There's a certain kind of book that, say, my publisher Abrams would put out. It's likely visual. It's a coffee table book and it's hardcover. And like that's that's the kind of book that they're known for. And like there's certain kinds of movies that certain studios would be known for putting out like Warner Brothers in the 30s and 40s was mainly known for genre films, particularly crime films and thrillers, and that has continued into the present day. Like Clint Eastwood, almost every movie that he has directed has been released through Warner Brothers, and many of those have a thriller or war film aspect. And a lot of, like, Lethal Weapon, that was Warner Brothers. Like, so there's a legacy there. And a lot of times, you know, although companies do change their brands or try to, a lot of times they don't really. Like, they just have new technology or new ways of telling a story, but, you know, the brand still means what it means. I wonder, too, how much the network identity affiliation matters. I think it still matters to the networks, certainly. But I wonder how much it still matters to individual shows. I don't know. Because I think, you know, especially with stuff like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, where you can watch shows from a lot of networks, you know, like I can watch all different kinds of shows on Netflix, not just Netflix originals, which has its own identity, but I can watch, you know, Gilmore Girls and Alias and The X-Files. <laughs> this is like what I have literally watched on Netflix in the last couple of weeks. And that sort of show-driven search, right, where you're not like, oh, I want, I wonder what's on TV right now. It's like, I want to watch this specific show and I, wherever it came from, who gives a shit, right? Especially because it's <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to watch this Australian TV show I heard a good, like, good things about. I'm going to watch Wentworth. I don't know what channel in Australia Wentworth airs on. No. I have no association with what that channel like other output is. There's no there's no sort of peripheral branding associated with any of the international shows for me. You know, I never like browsed by channel basically like no, no. for those kinds of shows. And I wonder how important it is, you know, now for shows where it's like, well, perhaps like the longevity of the show is going to be after its initial air, you know, that that it's gonna live on in streaming. And so whatever network, like, we actually don't care as long as we get to air our full season. Well, I think, you know, we could extend this by saying that a brand is not just created by a corporation. Like, it's, you know, clearly it's like people can create it and production companies can create it. And, and I actually do look for production company logos and the names of certain directors or producers to tell me what I might want to see. Like, because if I liked something that they did, there's a chance that I might like something else that they did. Like, that happens to me a lot. And 
like Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who did the movies like The Red Shoes, they had this logo of the archer, you know, the the target with the arrows hitting the middle of it. And if you saw that, you knew that you were going to get a particular type of experience, just like when you when you see Malpaso, which was Clint Eastwood's logo, you pretty much know what you're in for, which is like grim old dude, darkly lit, scowling. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you kind of know what you're going to get. And, and certain actors bring a particular vibe to them. You know, Clooney, I think by now we kind of know what we're getting into when you go to see George Clooney. And uh, a lot of people really, really enjoy the brand that he represents. And I had this conversation uh, about four or five years ago. I, I got a cheap deal on an apartment because it was directly over a jazz bar. And uh, there was this guy late one night, this xylophone player who, as jazz musicians will do, started spinning his theory of art and life and everything. He said something to me that stuck, which was, he said, if you think about all the artists who have really made a powerful impression on the collective consciousness, like people like, you know, Bob Dylan or Andy Warhol or people like that, they were in a lot of different things. They were into a lot of different things. They weren't just doing one kind of art. They were, And they were also sort of associating their name with things. But he said they all had a vibe. Everybody had a vibe. And I think these, net, like when we talk about a brand, we're talking about a vibe. Like FX definitely has a vibe. It it may not be always the bastard executioner or American Horror Story or uh, You're the Worst or The Americans, but we know what it means. Like we kind of know what it means. And if if they aired a show that doesn't feel like an FX show, we would notice and we would think it was weird. If you saw something on FX that you thought was weird, you can email us at tvquestions <laughs> at vulture dot com. <laughs> was that seamless? Did I work here? <laughs> that was great. That's it for this week's episode of the Vulture TV Podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV Podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Gazelle Mommy will be back with us next week. Matt, tell the people where they can find you on Twitter. Matt Zoller Sites with an ant in front of it. <laughs> and I'm Margaret Lyons. You can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.